Hey, what's going on? My name is Billy Newman. I'm here with Robert Biscarette. How you doing, Robert? Hey, I'm good. We are recording episode two of the Get Out There podcast, a uh, podcast about the outdoors, about outdoor adventure tourism, I guess about travel. I don't know anything else, probably just that we'd want to talk about. But uh, thanks, Robert, for doing this podcast with me today. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's been cool, man. Um, but yeah, what's been going on? It's been like oh, a, not a whole lot. It's been a week since we last did this. Yeah, we were talking about the lower rogue stuff on our uh, our pilot episode, and that was a crazy yeah. story. I was thinking about that like through the week. I was thinking about that like I just kind of took it as a novelty that you were telling us about that story, but then I was kind of playing it back of like, man, that's a lot of situations, a lot of different <laughs> moments in that chain of events that seemed like it was going to be pretty pretty tight to get out of. So yeah, thanks, man. I, thanks for talking about it. I think about it every day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Robert, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, was um, a raft guide for a number of years on the Rogue River and Lower Rogue River, which is pretty cool, man. I think it's, uh, it's no, small, no small task. Yeah, no, it's a ton of fun, man. It's, uh, it's opened a lot of opportunities up to me, and uh, you know, it's a passion, so, so it's, a, it's a win-win. Now that, but I've known you for a while, and I've known that you haven't always been on the river. In fact, I, I, I remember. Yeah, I remember like when we'd go out, we had the worst gear. We had like the little Bimart Tahiti that you'd inflate with <laughs> Dude, the wraps. Those little stuff. yellow, those yellow sapphires. <laughs> and we just, we just try get by going down from what like hogs to Galice or something like that, and we just see that thing taco in the center a few times. But well, yeah, yeah it, would, it would, or we'd be popping a wheelie because we'd have like a thirty rack in the back, <laughs> sitting on top of our life jacket. You know, I remember Jeremy <laughs> jumping off of his kayak onto the back of my kayak in a rapid to, to flip it upside, you know, and roll it over. And you think, oh, this is great. This is, this is, these are the brilliant river people that would one day guide you down the river. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you wonder how accidents happen. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that they do. Uh, but Robert, an avid outdoorsman, has been on the river for a good bit of time, skilled in that. But before that, Robert, I wanted to talk to you about some of the old experience you had learning how to hunt or learning how to do some of those some of those other types of outdoors things like um like i was thinking about trips that my dad and i did to eastern oregon and i wanted to ask you about these yeah. too like because uh, my dad and i i think we started going in, in like i don't know what 2001 2002 okay. or something like that in that time and we go out in the early fall we were just campers uh, and we just dug that time of year over in that part of the country but we would always cruise out east of klamath falls uh, east of Lakeview, and we go up into uh, the mountains over there near Warner Rim and Plush and Heart Mountain. That's beautiful. I dug that area; super cool. But so we've gone out there like a number of times to do like photos and camping and hiking and stuff. But that time of year was also, I think, a big or well, there's there's a few different seasons. You could probably explain that over time, but uh, but there's uh, always like different groups of hunters kind of coming in through that area because it was a lot of it was a big. Uh, public land out there. I think it was BLM land in that section, at least. And I think there was a season for antelope through that area. But I'm not yeah, really sure. Uh, yeah. Well, you've probably seen tons of antelope out there. Yeah, a ton of antelope. That, are you are you uh, uh, familiar with? I mean, just how incredible their eyesight is. Not really. No. Do you know? Oh, okay. I mean, crazy tangent, but I mean, antelope. Their eyesight is the equivalent of a ten power binocular. So I mean, imagine what? you're looking through ten power binoculars or something that's what an antelope sees um so i typically uh like when people hunt antelope um well i don't want to say typically and generalize everyone but i know there are a <laughs> lot of hunters that will use like radio communication and kind of like uh use two people you know over like the uh the radius of a mile and a half two miles oh wow um, and have somebody go way around and have somebody almost set up and one person tries to herd them towards um said hunter oh like someone um, that's like stationary or is that is that yeah. like when they get into the the ghillie suit kind of thing where they're like kind yeah of i mean i don't i don't know if they're like uh you know full-on sniper status but i mean really <laughs> close you know um i mean it's really you just want to stay still you know, because I mean, they just have such incredible eyesight. That's amazing. Yeah, I've wondered about yeah. that. You know, we've we spotted them out there because you know, in those areas, it's it's so flat. Well, well, it's, there's contour to the land, but you can see for miles and miles. And as you look out, you can you can see packs or you know groups of of three or four 
and sometimes a big pack. I think we saw maybe around 20 move through an area one time. Yeah. And you just go, oh, yeah, my they, gosh. they heard up and they cruise. Yeah, it was it was really interesting to see, and, and it was cool too because in the way that the the land was, you could see where hundreds of years before the Indian tribes in that area had also been to hunt, probably what might have been some of the same game. But, well, isn't that cool too when you're out there? Um, I mean, you're just like you're coming across all those like uh, obsidian areas where you know the indians would sit there and like chip their yeah, chip chip their arrowheads and spearheads and everything yeah so cool yeah, yeah it's really it's interesting awesome. when you get to kind of reflect on on how long people have been in in the area or when you get to see the those natural elements still just remain there because nothing's come by to disturb it since it's it's really remote territory that we end up being in a lot of time it's amazing yeah you're out there and you're so disconnected from people I mean, but there's still roads around. And so, I mean, you it's see true, roads yeah. and you just assume there's people everywhere. But it's amazing that you can walk, you know, 100 yards off of a main highway and find these just completely undisturbed obsidian deposits where just, uh, you know, 150 years ago or even longer, there was there was some, you know, just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't no, know, I some Indians yeah, sitting some... there chipping chipping arrowheads yeah there's been a there's been a handful of areas that i think we've seen there's a there's a museum in klamath falls that my dad and i went to on a trip back i think it was the fayville museum i think it was downtown okay. but it was it was this guy back in the i don't know like 20s 30s 40s 50s probably excuse me not not in his age but the 1920s 1930s 1940s i think for a good portion of his life what he did all the time was go out to Eastern Oregon, just to all sorts of different places across Oregon and collect obsidian and arrowheads and spear tips and, and knife tools. And it was the biggest collection of things across like the Columbia river area and like things wow. from the Paiute over in Eastern Oregon and central Oregon and stuff from bend in the, in the lakes that were around there. There was like these beautiful pieces. Oh, they had uh, one from Nevada that was an opal arrowhead. That was like the Whoa. most famous one. Yeah, it was it was almost like a like a decorative ceremonial arrowhead, but it okay. but it was like yeah, cuz it was just such a pretty jewel-like kind of arrowhead, but it was like yeah, this opal-made arrowhead that came out of Nevada from somewhere. I guess from some opal mine area. Wow. Yeah, you think about it, like, wow, that's so cool, but he had some of the most most rare pieces in that area. But it was really cool. You could walk through, you could just see all of these different different pieces that were collected before the Times change and, and uh, those things were you know restricted in collection, but but at the time yeah it was set up and now it's just it's just set up into a museum where you can observe a lot of the ancient history and ancient um, Paleolithic tools. It's cool stuff. That's that's great. I'd love to go check that out. That would it's take cool. A trip out there one of these days. We yeah actually we should yeah that'd be a fun one to check out. But I wanted to talk to you about um, like where you guys like used to go hunting or like where you guys would would first go out when you were younger. Yeah. Was it over to Eastern Oregon at first, or, or were you guys more local? Well, yeah, I was out in the uh, over in the Fort Rock unit, and um, God, as long as I've been out there, I still can't really explain that the significance of that area, and I'm sure you could probably touch better on that. Maybe. Uh, maybe. But. But for Fort Rock but, or the. Yeah, the yeah Fort Rock. Fort uh, Rock is really cool. What is that area? That's like um, I think it's in like the Deschutes area. It's east. Uh, not quite. It's like okay. So yeah, you would head south of like uh, of um, boy, what is that? Bend, you know, cruise down through Lapine on ninety seven, and then you cruise down through Shilliquin and out that way. Yeah, I remember Shilliquin and, and cutting east, or yeah, cutting east then, because I remember coming up on Highway fifty eight. I guess I'd figure. Uh huh. Or that Diamond Lake cutoff. Do you remember that super straight road that cuts? It cuts yeah. past uh, Mount Thielson. I remember it was just like 30 miles on an absolutely straight road. I was blown away when I first saw it when I was a kid. Which is silly now. It's probably just pretty normal. <laughs> but <I> remember, <laughs> yeah, you get out to Highway 140 and then you take that, that lower highway that cuts out. And I remember going out there, um, yeah, going out to, to Fort Rock first. And then there's like Silver Lake. And then further you go out to yeah. Summer Lake. Mm -hmm. Or you can go out to Christmas Valley out in that area. There's a whole bunch of cool little spots out there. Yeah, tons, tons to explore, you know. I mean, just in Oregon, there's so much, and it, it's it's so cool because it's just a, such a vast change of uh, 
of environment, you know? It completely I mean, you, is, yeah. Yeah. You come from the West Coast side of Oregon, you know, and everything's kind of green and lush. And you get out there and you're in that high desert, just uh, sagebrush and just that ground pumice from all that volcanic activity. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's a neat area. I have, I have a lot of love for that area. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah. That area's always been really cool and, and really, really close to me. But yeah, Fort Rock is really cool. That's that's a really interesting geological feature where uh it looks like a crater almost. You know, where okay. like a like if a meteor came down and like kind of punched out a section. Like I was just hearing about uh was it like our you know that meteor crater in Arizona where it's that big giant circle? It sort of brings yeah. up that image in your head, but this one's different. It's it's built like a fortress almost as it was, but what I've understood is that it was uh, sort of like Smith Rock in a way where there was an aquifer and then there was like an active okay. lava flow. And I guess this type of rock came up and, and created that shape, however it was, all at one time. And I guess the area around it eroded away, but that area was okay. harder. I don't really know if that's true. Yeah, that isn't that sense. kind of the same, the same uh, idea as, what is that, Devil's Tower in like, uh, in where is that? Is that like, North Dakota? Wyoming. North Dakota, yeah. I don't know, actually. It's, uh, I, I, I think you're right, or Wyoming, maybe. Oh, yeah, you, you, it definitely um, could be true. But yeah, I think that was kind of the same thing, where just like, you know, everything eroded away from it, and uh, what was left was that hardened material. I remember I'm on not, a field trip, they said that about Table Rock over in Medford, oh, too. <laughs> that was, I was just, just going to say that, but uh, I, <laughs> I'm just kind of talking out of my ass i don't really know what i'm actually saying. no i remember i see i don't know if that I, I don't know but i'm not a geologist but i remember that on the on the field trip in seventh grade they said that the rogue rivers erosion through the area is what created or you know that that waterway of erosion is what created much of that valley there which is interesting i was wow. wondering about that because the rogue river was from mount mazama i was wondering if the rogue river exist would the rogue river have existed in the same channel before Mount Mazama would have blown and become Crater Lake? Uh, I, you know, I don't, so it comes from Boundary Springs, which is just off the left, or the left, um, off the west side of Crater Lake. Okay. Um, about, you know, seven miles or so. Um, but, I mean, I've, I've gotten, like, a little bit of a geology lesson from uh, a couple people down there since I've been in the canyon. Yeah, I wanted to and, hear um, your perspective. And and actually, I got a book called uh, like the Portrait of the Rogue, which is really kind of a neat read, especially if you're from around the area. Um, but one of the excerpts in there talks about um, how the coastal range, um, like the coast, used to be over near the Blue Mountains and the Wallowas. I've right. heard that. That's that's where the coast was. You know, you'd walk out there to your little steamboat and go trolling for crabs. Um, wow. <laughs> just about, just a couple million years ago. No, I've, uh, I've heard that that was the case. I saw an animation one time that you know sped up time by a million years a second, but you could see the old coast being, I guess, what would be kind of the remnant of the Rocky Mountain plate that kind of comes down from Canada where the Wallowas are, and it would be that sort of section. And then it showed these clumps of different different land masses sort of landing into into ours. Isn't there a subduction zone? Like some of the stuff that causes all the trouble for earthquakes down in California. And there's sort of similar yeah. stuff up here where, where, yeah, it was a couple different land or types of landmass that came together. Well, God, can you imagine? I mean, this, this area had to be such like a, a geographical hotspot when all this, when these tectonic shifts and volcanic. Oh, my just, gosh. A, a turmoil yeah. was going on. Could you imagine? I have this no had to be idea. like the most inhabitable place. <laughs> it's gotta be like you know like it would be horrible well isn't isn't it known as sort of an interesting uh geological area because of the way the redwood curtain acts or or looks as, as a piece of land like uh i, I heard that it was it was just really like, mountainous and ridgy because it was kind of well i don't know it was just the nature of that that coastal zone that's come in was uh like a really rocky kind of lumpy crinkled piece of land that was coming up. It was like unusual for the rest of the area around the United States. It doesn't have that type of, of land formation. But I don't really know anything uh, about it. We should talk I, to Tyler. He's got a yeah, we should ask Tyler. <laughs> he's got uh, he's got a degree 
At least he's taking classes in uh, in this subject. So that probably yeah. Be <laughs> well, you know, I remember going up uh, on a drive with my cousin Lauren. We'll get back to the the rogue and the Mazama stuff in a second. I remember going on a uh, on a drive with my cousin Lauren. We went up to the top of a well, I guess it was the, one of the top sections of the Siskiyous. We did that road that I think you and I had been on before. That's south of Applegate Lake as you go into California. And you can take that yeah. road a long ways back. It goes up and up and up and up and up that mountain. And you can actually take it all the way through to end out on that happy camp highway uh, at the other end. Maybe, what is that, the Klamath River? I don't know what that other... Man, uh, I didn't, didn't we do that drive one time? We did do that over the... Um, over uh, the we, came, we came from a different direction, but I mean, yeah. real similar. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. same thing, yeah. Um, but I remember, I think that might have taken a lower pass, but I remember this one, we came up to a point and it was just, it was a super high elevation i looked at it later it was almost seven thousand feet above sea level when you get to that point and you wow. look out you can see yeah you can see up to up to crater lake you can see uh, mclaughlin really well from that spot but it, when i looked later uh to kind of find out some information about the geology of that area that they, they had mentioned how it was interesting because the reason it was so high is because it was a different piece of land that had kind of come into that area but it was just weird to think that you're you know you're standing on something that was I guess another piece or plate of land that came in and then kind of joined the coast or rise in elevation at a time. Like you were saying how the coast used to be over toward Montana. Yeah. It's man. I could trip out on the way mountains and everything were formed just as oh, much yeah. as I could trip out on space. Like, <laughs> yeah, all the time, man. I wish I knew about it either. <laughs> it's like, it's, I mean, we know so much, but still so little, you know, and, and we can't really wrap our heads around magnitude of how it all formed oh yeah absolutely no i i have absolutely no way of holding in my mind the understanding of more than a thousand years probably i mean even a thousand years it seems like a stretch to kind of imagine truly that much or to keep track of it but when it goes into a million years or ten thousand years or uh you know any any number of millions of years in the past before that when things like this in our landmass would have been formed it's just like oh completely beyond me um but yeah. so what was it? Five thousand years ago, they say Mount Mazama blew. You say that that the Rogue yeah, River comes out of Boundary Springs. I, I just remember like all the lava flows and all the you know the the what I don't, what do they call that? Just the the cinder blocks or the well, I guess it would be lava flows where you just see all that basalt <laughs> kind of piled up for miles and miles and miles around there. I always would have thought that would have diverted some of the water flow. But you said you you would talk to some people about the the Rogue River and like how it how its channel was further down. Yeah, uh, this. And actually, uh, a guy I would love to have on this podcast, his name is Bob Rafalovich, and uh, he's a salty old codge. But, um, <laughs> I'd love to talk to him. That'd be so cool. <laughs> oh, he's, he's great, man. And uh, he's actually the guy that you know, founded Rogue Wilderness, who I now oh, cool. work for. Yeah, so that was his business for a number of years, and now it's come full circle, and now he's just an employee at his old business. <laughs> so, that's that's uh, the way to go. But, you know, he's been on the river for 42 years. Like, the guy knows everyone and everything. And he has such an array of information. And I think uh, I think maybe getting him on sometime would be really, really great. That'd be so but, cool. Uh, I'd yeah. love to get to talk to a guy like that. Yeah, I, and, and he'll go for hours. So, I mean, put on your, uh, you know, put on a cup of pot of coffee and uh, make <laughs> yourself comfortable. Yeah, do a three-party. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. So. Yeah, so what did he know about the, the lower up? When oh, the... yeah, sorry. So no, anyway, yeah, yeah he, he just, he's taken down several geologists that, uh, that all really told him the same thing. Um, and he had told it to me, and, um, you know, it's just Bob hearsay at that point. Sure. Um, <laughs> and until, you know, I did a little bit of reading and stuff, and, uh, yeah, I read the same thing. I'm just horrible at retaining information the way it was actually displayed. And so anytime I try to, uh, I understand. Um, you know, repeat something, it comes out a little skewed. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> so I won't do it any justice, but from what I read, um, that, that was, that was actually a situation at one point. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. I was, I was always curious, like cause the way that the coastal range on Oregon works is kind of, kind of interesting. Like we don't uh, see it, you know, much further down, like in California, I think as you get past Northern California, like past San Francisco, it seems like it's pretty flat up until you get closer to what I thought was part of the 
Cascades or the Sierras as it comes out uh-huh. in elevation. So it's kind of interesting. Like up here, we have that coastal range that kind of runs up, probably up into Canada. But uh, oh yeah, kind of nutty stuff. So we were yeah. talking about hunting Eastern Oregon stuff over by Fort Rock. That's where you that's where you started when you were younger. Yeah. So um, yeah, I guess I mean I can really kind of attribute uh, my whole love of the outdoors to uh, my first time going hunting. You know, um, that's cool. Yeah, my my dad was always all about getting me out there. I mean, my first hunting trip with him, uh, actually going east. Um, I was old, eight years old. I was going to ask, how old were you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, he used to go every year, you know, and I was always so bummed because dad leaves for two weeks, you know, and like, and I can't <laughs> go. And his friends are there and all the guys are going. And uh, and so when I was finally eight, uh, I got to go over there. It's also where I learned to drive. Um, oh, nice spot. <laughs> yeah. Nice spot for it, yeah. So <laughs> anyway, got out there. Um, like I said, such a cool environment and it gets so cold out there at night, but, Oh yeah. I remember, um, especially in the fall like that, it gets so yeah. cold at night. Well, I remember always waking up, you know, we'd have the pot of coffee. We would make the pot of coffee the night before. So we just have to heat it up in the morning. And, um, nice. you know, every morning the coffee is just like a block of ice, just a solid <laughs> block inside your coffee pot. And you know, there's, there was always ice on the inside the tent and the the what is that the air mattress is all deflated from the cold air and always everything. deflated and always but deflated. then you know you get up and it's like it's like seven degrees you know you get up you're freezing you're shivering just uncontrollably because you're up <laughs> at the coldest part of the day that like yeah like that four hour, four that hour five. 15 minutes before sunrise best <laughs> and, time uh, best time to be out God, well you know what that's when you got to do it you know catch catch uh, the deer when they're up yeah absolutely um start moving around in the early morning um but yeah then you get out there man and the sun comes out and then you always dress in layers because by 11 30 you're sweating and you're in a t-shirt and you've got your pants rolled up into shorts oh i totally remember like... that especially out there yeah by by even 8 a.m in the summertime i remember the atmosphere just totally changing from being like in, in all of my coats just trying to stay warm a little bit and then just like yeah. stripping down to just yeah, just having the t-shirt on again. But I remember, I remember that so much about Eastern Oregon. But so you went out there yeah. when you were you were eight, the first time you guys yeah, went out. Eight. That's cool. Wow, that's pretty yeah. cool. Um, you know, my dad get I had a little twenty-two that he gave me, twenty-two rifle, um, and I was allowed to just kind of plank and target practice around camp and stuff. Um, I couldn't pack a real deer rifle, you know, until later. Um. But uh, I remember my my first confirmed kill was a blue jay, um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> my dad was like, "Really, you shot a blue jay?" And uh, and so I've still got the picture. But we, you know, we've always hunted on you. You know, you eat what you kill. Oh and, yeah. Uh, and so I killed this blue jay, and uh, my dad made me skin it out, clean it up, and uh, I ate blue jay breast for dinner. Wow. Um, yeah, that was that was my first. Uh, <laughs> that was my. It was a it was a trophy jay. It was a pretty good size. Oh yeah. You know? Oh yeah. A trophy I just, jay. I just didn't have the cash flow to get it mounted at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot, you missed out. What was uh? What was blue jay breast like? Was it like chicken? Man, um, I can barely remember like last week in my life, <laughs> let alone me being. Let eight. alone. The flavors of a bird you ate at a camping trip in the cold <laughs> 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, That's pretty I mean, fair. cliches and sounds, I'm just going to say, I mean, it was just a white poultry, a white yeah. beaded poultry. I mean, I, I, I kind of remember it being like a gamey chicken. That's, that's, um, what, I, that's what I'd suspect, that it'd be something like that. Yeah. So not even really gamey, just kind of like lean. You know, it wasn't sitting in a little foster farms cage. Sure, game. yeah, yeah pumped with steroids <laughs> so a blue jay then you moved up yeah. you got a bigger rifle you're a little older yeah when's when the first 13, time you go out yeah when i was 13 my grandpa gave me his 30 out six uh he bought it when he was like 19 years old it was a model 1903 um 
really cool rifle. Um, I so I started packing my rifle when I was thirteen. Took my hunter safety course, and I went through all of that. Um, kind of made it official, and then I hunted, and we hunted, and we hunted, and we hunted, and pretty <laughs> unsuccessfully. Uh, so when we were out there in that Fort Rock area, it became a uh, victim to a lot of logging. Oh, um, really? So, you know, this is where my dad and his buddies have been going forever. They've been pulling these big, big mule deer out of there. You know, got all these great stories. You know, everybody gets a deer every year. <laughs> wow. I come of age, and there's just not a deer to be found in this area. No um, Yeah. Um, and that was because was of the of hunting in the, in the area? Oh, poaching. There, well, there was a combination. There was a lot of clear-cutting and a lot of poaching. And so between those two, um, you know, a lot of the deer moved out of the area just due to the clear cutting, and sure. a lot of them were killed off with the poaching. Oh, wow. Um, so it became pretty scarce there for like a, uh, for about an eight-year period. And then I guess when I was about 16, we moved over to, uh, to what's called the Sprague unit, and uh, we've been hunting that area ever since. We I know the Sprague River, there. and um, I know Sprague Mountain. That I've been to is that is that kind of the same area you would say is that yeah. like kind of the, yeah. the the was it Chiloquin kind of Chinook and past that area is that Sprague yeah there's the Sprague River yeah that's Sprague um, and do you know where uh, the Williamson River is no I don't think so actually is okay. that is that it's, over there it's yeah it's right out in that area there's a uh, there's a big casino off ninety seven uh, and there's uh, in between. Boy, in between like Shilliquin and Klamath Falls. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, um, out there is the Williamson, and we're kind of over in that area now. And um, it's really beautiful. There's a there's a water wildlife refuge out there. Oh, I bet that's a cool spot. Um, and just an absolutely gorgeous area. Yeah. So you know, kind of same, um, same landscape and everything. And we've been out there for, well, for I don't know, twelve years now, and. Um, you know, I've actually still never taken a deer out there, as embarrassing as that is. Oh, really? Um, well, so, yeah. okay, so, yeah. go back to when you are 13. You got your 30 out six. Okay. Is that when you got your first deer that year? No. Oh, no, okay, no. you just got your gun that no, year. No, my You've first been hunting year was, and hunting and hunting. yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. calling you. Uh, people like to, uh, like to assume that you just kind of walk out and just pick a deer and just blast it. That's like a good day of hunting. No, but, I know uh, it's uh, it's supposed to be by I, I if if I understand right, I think it's supposed to be like one in five times you might get it. Is that would that say about right? Well, that's the thing too. Yeah, that's that's very accurate. And the thing is, over there it's such a short season. I mean, if you come over here to uh to hunt western deer, you're you're looking at a thirty day season. You know, wow. over there, you're looking at a nine-day season. Oh, really? And so, I mean, yeah. And also, um, the Klamath Indians are in that area, and they have uh, full hunting rights all year long. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. So, it's, it's, it's frequently hunted, you know? So, I mean, the deer, the deer understand that people are, are not a good, a good sign, you know? So, they're pretty skittish and that makes hard sense. to come by. Yeah. And, and mule deer are interesting in the way they kind of sleep and watch. Um, mule deer, their predator is a cougar. So the way they, the way they set up is they like ridges, um, little kind of areas that they can sit just at the top. And they like to sit with the wind of their back looking down the hill. Oh, interesting. So what they're doing is they have the view down off this ridge to the flat area below so they can see anything coming from that way. Okay. And they also have the wind at their back so they're smelling anything coming from behind them over the ridge. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. You know, I've heard of, of types of maneuvers that animals do that seem far more strategic than what, than what lay people might place on an animal to do in the wild like that. I've heard of some really interesting things like that, like the experience that a buck will have over a doe or over over younger uh, male deer at the same time, like how it'll go in and uh, the the buck will be the one in a group of deer as a predator comes in and it'll scare the rest of the deer out, but the buck will stay still in that same spot 
and not move because it's seen that before or it knows that as it goes out, it's going to expose itself to more danger than whatever was there. But it's just kind of interesting, these little behaviors like what you're talking about, how they know how to evade their predators that are around them. Yeah, nature's scary, man. You got to get smart out there. That would... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems, it seems like it would be pretty cruel otherwise. Um, yeah. That's, that's really cool, though. That's interesting. So uh, is, that, is that where you guys try and find them while well, you guys are out there in the Sprague area? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we go out there and we beat the brush. and It's so dry out there. You're making so much noise, as quiet as you try to be. Um, and a lot of times you jump there. You never – they can smell so much better than you can. And these mule deer are called mule deer because of their ears. They have these, these large ears that are larger than other deer species. And in fact, they're much larger than other deer species. Oh, okay. Um, but – so these these ears act as like uh, you know the old man and like the the horn like eh um, <laughs> yeah you know yeah, that's definitely. what they're okay. doing they're just amplifying everything and uh, and they can hear so well and so I I mean you're really stalking you're trying hard and um, it, you know so a lot of times you jump them and you just hear them you know chunk, 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 going off through the brush oh so and that, moving. Yeah. And then that pumice, you can kind of feel it like in the ground, you know, it's just kind of like it's got that bassy kind of oh wow feel to it. And uh, yeah, so no, I've never had any luck out there. Uh, my luck actually has been over west, which I just kind of started hunting over here again um, this last two years. And these last two years, I've been really fortunate. Now, is that um, whitetail deer over here or is that blacktail? Blacktail. So what's the difference? So there's yeah. mule tail or... There's uh, mule, mule deer. deer. There's yeah. white tail. Yeah. Where do you find those? Is that the Midwest in Canada, the, or is the that... white tail? You know, and I'm not sure how far west they go. I think I know. I know they're white tail are like an East Coast deer, like okay. uh, you know, like Arkansas area. All right, that stuff. makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then you get the black tail over here on the west, and then the mule deer are more like your Arizona, Utah. They like that deserty. Oh, interesting stuff. Is that why they're a little um, bigger as it comes, or they're they seem like they're they're a little bit larger for their environment out there? Is that why, or it seems like they're out in the higher desert area? But you said they were a little bit of a bigger animal. Is that right? Yeah. In fact, they're. I yeah. I mean, uh, a mule deer is generally going to have about you know forty to fifty pounds on a on a good sized blacktail. Oh, really? You wow. know, they're they're significantly larger. Yeah, even. It's crazy too because after being over there hunting for so many years, you see these big does. You know, they just have a big body on them, and then you come over here, and you get a nice buck over here, a nice black tail on the west side. Yeah, and and they're smaller than like, you know, eighty five percent of the does you see <laughs> over in eastern Oregon. It's just it's unreal. Really, wow. That's, yeah. So, what's it like? Um, have like has have people in your party had each of or have each got one of the deers? Or like, I was I was gonna ask you what's the difference in like the meat or the the quality of the way that it tastes when you have it. Does it seem any different, like deer to deer, or is it about the same? Um, so I can't I can't really find any quality difference between a blacktail and a mule deer, but there's a the, definite difference between a young deer and an old deer oh okay um, yeah i could uh, yeah it makes a lot of sense um you know we we first hunt for food we secondly hunt for you know a trophy size i mean ideally everybody wants to get that big buck you know that one yeah absolutely like, sure oh awesome um but when it comes down to it, you know, if you shoot a fork and horn or a spike or something, you're going to have great meat. When you get into those older bucks that have been out there for seven, eight years, and that's an old deer, um, you know, the, the meat's kind of gamey. It's just kind of chewy. doesn't have really good flavor. Um, I was going to, yeah. But was, it's, that's you interesting. know, you season it a little bit more. Sure, sure. That makes a good bit of sense, though. I've heard that before, and... and uh... And does it? What is their diet? Is it just I mean, uh, they forage? But... Mushrooms. They eat a lot of mushrooms. That's a good way to track them. Really? You see these spots in the pine needles where they uh, use their hooves and kind of paw up these mushrooms. Okay. Um, 
And uh, so you'll find them in these like shady areas underneath the trees. The pine needles will all be torn back, and they dig through that duff layer on the forest floor there, and they'll find these mushrooms that haven't even surfaced. They smell them through the pine needles and the duff. And um, in those high moisture areas, they'll pull them out and eat those. Um, I mean, they're grazers, so I mean, whatever they can pick off of, you yeah, know, the, sure. the flora in the area. Huh. That's pretty interesting. So you, and then on the, so on the west side of the Cascades, it's black-tailed deer. And where do you guys try and hunt now? You said it was like the last two years or so that you've been over here on the west side? Yeah. And in fact, I've, I've been hunting in the, uh, the Rogue Siskiyou National Forest uh, the last couple of years. That makes sense. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've been spending a lot of time in that area, kind of getting to know the lay of the land. And beautiful country, but man, that's the difference too. Um, the terrain over here on the west side is so steep. It's so and, steep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, over in eastern Oregon, if you knock a deer down, you know, it's going to run, but it's predominantly flat. Sure. You can track it and you can, you can get it back out to a road or something somewhere. Um, in a short amount of time if you needed to. Um, but what you find over here is it might run, you know, 600 yards down into a ravine. Oh, man. And you're spending all day long trying to pack it out, you know, oh. hundreds of feet. What's that work, work like? Or, you know, if that happens, I mean, yeah, you, so you have to, you go down and like, what's the process even for getting that packed out? So I always take rope with me. Um, you know, in your pack, uh, you, you take more than what you need cause you never know what you're going to need. Sure. Um, one thing is cool. I use one of those river systems where, uh, you can make a three point pulley, um, out of your rope. It's called oh, a Z drag. Nice. So you can have a three to one pull ratio anchor off a tree. You've got a hundred foot rope. You can take it up a hundred feet at a time and you can do that by yourself pretty easily. Oh, wow. um, another, option is is you can just kind of just throw it on your back and hike it out that's slow going and that's what tiring. i've heard i've heard just like these hell stories of these guys that like shot one in a canyon and they had to like climb down to the canyon and then and then walk this creek bed out to the road with uh i think they had a pig or they were uh you know uh, okay like yeah uh what is it like boar wild boar or something yeah boar yeah uh, but yeah, so they had to pack out this pig, like, you know, however long down the, just this terrible, crappy ravine of a creek. And it just sounds like a hell story of like, you know, <laughs> carrying hundreds of pounds on your pack to try and get it out. But <laughs> I just, yeah, it just That's, sounds exhausting. Well, yeah. Okay. So, uh, just today I was listening, I was telling you a little bit, uh, Oh yeah. Tell me about that. To that, uh, that Joe Rogan podcast. Yeah. And he was talking about a buddy of his during his podcast and his buddy hiked in 12 miles on this hunt, right? Just by himself. <clears throat> Ends up knocking down this elk out there. Oh, my gosh. So, first off, you figure an elk is, you know, 900 pounds. I mean, it's a big animal. <clears throat> and um, so he's 12 miles in. And so he, he quarters this thing out and debones it and everything. And now he's packing it. He, I, he packed it out piece by piece. Over wow. the course of four days. Wow. Yeah. And it was just, and, and uh, later on he goes on to say, you know, it was just the most hellacious experience. Like, yeah, it would have you, to be. That's so you're walking work. a minimum of 24 miles a day. Oh my goodness. You know, it <laughs> just, but I mean, but not easy walking. It's not like you got a day pack and your camel pack on, you know? Yeah. You've got, you've got 80 to 100 pounds of meat on your back. Is there a system or a, or a technology like you know? There's like technical backpacker backpacks and stuff. Are there? Or is there some kind of meat packing like gear that you get <laughs> for hunting, or is it just is it just all old school? Uh, you know, I I don't know. I've uh, I've never <laughs> been in that situation. We've always just kind of uh, you know thrown it on our packs and just gone. Yeah, sure, you sure. Know, secure it somehow and and just pack it out. Yeah. So I've heard, I don't know. I've heard people will sometimes in those remote situations, they'll, or at least I needed clarification on this. They'd like, they'd gut the animal there and they'd, I guess, like just prep the meat and then they leave 
the remains as after they cleaned it. Does that make sense? And then they just pack out the meat itself instead of the whole animal? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So when I say deboning, you know, you're removing, I mean, you're cleaning off the rib bones, you're cleaning yeah. everything off, taking all the usable meat, um, and you're just, you're essentially just leaving the waste parts, the parts that the crows and the yellow jackets and things like that will come take care of, coyotes and that, things of that nature. How long does that take to uh, to to debone, or what is is that dressing an animal, or is that different? There's yeah, there's there's very variations of that. So there's there's field dressing, which is just a quick you remove um, the vitals, um, and you know, and you you can do what's called uh, caping, which some some uh, like trophy hunters will do if they plan okay. on having the animal mounted. And that's where they'll take the entire hide um, yeah. off of the deer or whatever animal it is. Um, so you can take it down to the carcass like that. Um, we've always just field dressed, you know, removed the vitals, um, cleaned out the inner cavity, and then pack the deer out like that. And then once we get back to camp, that's when we'll go ahead and actually skin the deer. Sure, that makes sense. And then remove those pieces. It um, seems like that's what I've seen before. Yeah, and it really depends on your terrain. I mean, oh, that makes sense too. Um, yeah. How are you going to keep the animal cool? Like, you know, things like that, and all those things play a factor as soon as you do that. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> that's so. pretty interesting. So, what's the hunting uh, hunting experiences for you like been over here, uh, over in the uh, the Rogue River area? They've been great. They've been great. I've had. Uh, some really nice deer. Um, my first one was a young buck, but it was really, really great deer. I mean, we're, we're still eating it, you know? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I had it made into like, uh, I don't know. I got 65 pounds of hamburger out of it and some tenderloin and stuff. Are you serious? <laughs> wow. Is it good? Yeah. Is it good for steaks at all? Or would you, would you never do that? You would just always go for uh, ground. It's just not really big enough for steaks uh, the, tenderloins, the tenderloins are like little steaks they're like almost you know a little filet mignon you get those little bacon wrapped sirloins or something you get sure they're about that size um and those are great man you pan fry them up with like a little salt and pepper a little garlic powder oh yeah i bet that's so kind good. of pan serum and a little butter oh it's fantastic really tender and that's why they're called the tenderloin oh, okay yeah, <laughs> for sure so but, then most uh, of the time when you're preparing the meat and you're cooking it are you guys making like like burgers is that is that the kind of thing or or what do you guys yeah i mean make? We'll, we'll make like spaghetti out of it you know oh yeah definitely it or um i mean anything that you would use like ground beef or ground turkey for yeah um you can you can use venison the same way and it cooks very much like beef that's cool um, that's really yeah cool. and it's it's great and you can taste the difference you know you can it's so crazy how you can taste the difference between a farmed animal and a wild animal. It must and, be really strange. What do you notice in it? It's just, I don't know. I uh, know it's kind of, yeah, it's strange to describe what another sense is, is able to experience, but I was just trying to, to figure if it, because I've kind of had that experience too, at least at least like on a smaller scale, or maybe like uh, with eggs, you could say even, if you kind of notice yeah. the difference between like a, a store-bought egg and then one from a farm, like where it's been out picking through bugs and grass and all sorts of different things that the, that the chicken eats and consumes and then has those nutrients to make the egg from. It's so weird to, to notice how much of a different flavor, a different consistency that has when you, when you put it in, in just a pan to eat. It's kind well, of Well, absolutely. I mean, I mean, color, texture, everything. Yeah. I it's mean, like you, milky probably... white versus this like orange, like this dark auburn <laughs> color. And you're yeah. like, that's the same thing. Even the I same know. animal could have made that makes you wonder man what's going in it what what is different about this why does this look taste and smell different it's yeah it is it is kind of nuts but so it do you and you think that just kind of comes from having a natural diet or kind it's of, a natural diet and it's just a healthy animal you know sure like it's, they're out there and they're they're moving around and staying active um i mean they're eating natural you know, natural foliage off the land. Um, yeah. 
You well, know, now how old are these deer? I was I was trying to put that in my mind a little bit too about how big and in mass these animals are, but also like how how many years they are. Like, uh, you know, I see them grow up pretty quick in my backyard when I when they kind of run through. And after, I mean, what is it like the the one you you got? How old would you have said that was? This oh the the one that we currently have. Um, he was I would say about two or three. Yeah, okay. Maybe. Um, I mean, a, a long life for a deer is eight or nine years. That's what I was thinking. It was, it was like a dog or something like that. But you also think about yeah. the size of the animal. And I guess it's maybe true with horses sometimes too, but you know, these really big animals, these animals that are able to take on a ton of mass and be pretty enormous really quite quickly. But yeah, I was thinking about that. Yeah. That meat you're saying is what, two or three years old. That's like, it's just been grown. It doesn't really seem like it'd be that old at all. No, not at all. Yeah. <clears throat> and um and that's, you know, they haven't had that chance to to I mean, they I'm sorry, did you did you say something about I guess I misunderstood that question. Oh, well no, it, uh, not too much of a question, but I just thought it was interesting though. Yeah, like uh, the the deer you got is just a couple years old, so it or they really don't live very long. Uh, these deer, you know, when they when they come to maturity and then are available uh, to be part of the the uh, public trust of uh, food to be shot at. So, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. Uh, I mean, they they're really into maturity after their their yearling stage. You know, I mean, yeah. they're already reproducing. They've already uh, you know contributed to to do the development of more species. Yeah. <clears throat> more yeah. of the species not just species in general <laughs> no it's uh but yeah it's kind of nutty though that yeah they're, they're able to to come about so quick i guess yeah it's kind of like a dog's uh timeline too i just always you know you get kind of caught up uh, being people centric sometimes where you think like oh man like a one-year-old like that doesn't have much meat on it but you, <laughs> but you yeah or you or you put this almost like uh this human-like characteristic with it and uh yeah sure you know where you're like well i have a child that's two like what if what if somebody shot that you know and then, <laughs> it wouldn't know and any people better, yeah. yeah and let alone and, that it's their nature to come out of the womb walking you know it's, they're, <laughs> they're kind of different than we are i guess <laughs> well yeah man i mean they come out and they're just like let's get something to eat yeah you know, let's go already we're, up we're already at it i've only got 24 should, months should left climb? <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. i gotta i gotta start walking right away i can't i can't wait around like these human babies i gotta go now <laughs> god do you ever think about that like like how terrible we are as people oh yeah you like, know, like uh, how did we yeah. ever survive like who was it's... the first person that survived nature i mean like we go out with with nice like Gore-Tex and waterproof boots and stuff. And you get out in the elements on like a 40 degree day or let's say like a 35 degree day and it's raining. It's kind of like that sleet, the yeah. wind's blowing it and it's nasty, bad. man. Yeah. You're like, I mean, I've, I've been in some situations and I'm smart about being outdoors where you're thinking like, I got to get out of here. Oh yeah, it's like this is too much exposure. This is weird. Yeah, I've I've had that a How couple you, times too, in heat and cold, and then you're like, oh, it's like a weird signal your body gives you. Like, yeah. Oh no, too much, too much. How do you put like a, a newborn, like the first baby? Like, how do you put the first baby out there for like the first? I don't know. Man. The first life, yeah. Like, oh, well, you know. <laughs> uh, after I was reflecting on this, it's been one year since we got we went to Hawaii marina and I, that was okay. the first time i was in an island atmosphere a tropical uh, climate and then you think it dawns on you all of a sudden like oh people didn't get born in north america it's cold up there like people oh yeah <laughs> people grew, you know, grew where <laughs> monkeys grow people grew where they could grow with no clothes on that's where that's where they, but uh, I mean, the population even... but yeah no forty thousand years ago when the first uh i don't know People were coming over the Bering Strait from China, or what is that part of uh, of Asia, coming over into America, and you think, yeah. like, just cruising through through Kamchatka and Alaska, and down and through British Columbia into Oregon, and then settling all the way down to the southern tip of of South America, and you think, man, they like walked that. Ugh. And not only that, like I, I mean, I love this area now. 
Oh yeah. You know, I I love this area. This will always be home. But I don't know, man. If I'm coming over the Pangea Land Bridge or something, and I'm walking into Oregon in the winter, oh. I'm just gonna say yeah. bad bad choice. Let's uh let's go somewhere else. This is not <laughs> my. Let's keep going south. <laughs> this, I think so- there's. There's more habitable. Yeah, let's let's try for just a few more days. <laughs> just just two more months of walking, we could be in Santa Cruz. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Chill <laughs> on the yeah. boardwalk. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that would have been rough. Yeah, I don't know how they would have done it back then. It's amazing at all, but and it's also amazing too that there are still native people kind of living the way they would have in really harsh conditions or harsh climates, kind of all oh over the God. world. So I don't know. It seems well, like people adapt to it. And you know what's interesting, like when you're on these long, these like long hunting trips, and you're out in the woods for days on end, or you know you're out on a fishing trip or something. Right. It it gives you such an appreciation for what life would have been like back then. First off, oh absolutely, you haven't showered in several days. You know, you, like you've gotten to that point where you're like, man, I need to clean up. And then, you know, you're cold. You're a little hungrier than you'd normally be. And then the thing that gets me is any little cut. I mean, you nick your knuckle on something. Oh. And that's just something here you go, yeah, whatever. No, it's um, totally, I totally understand what you're talking about. But yeah, I mean, infection, it happens so quickly. Yeah, way and quickly out there. And that's a big time deal when you don't have access to any medicine or any way to really clean that wound. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, God, our our survival rate must have been horrible. Ugh, ugh, just horrible back then. I, I yeah, we should uh, count our lucky stars. We were born this century. <laughs> it's way it's way easier. We just get to podcast in our houses, and then like uh, what? <laughs> Two hundred years ago, on this spot, this was just like jungle land. <laughs> well, I mean, it was it was just wilderness, and probably you know the area you live and the area I live right now. There was nothing here. It's like yeah. How is that? What, 1817? Like, yeah, what would have been going on in the Willamette Valley and the and the Rogue Valley during that time? It's like there's no development out here. So it's just, yeah, it's amazing that it's just now so recent that we have all of it. Thank I heard goodness there were a lot of, like, uh, EDM festivals and things like that. Oh, yeah, there's tons. <laughs> man, back, yeah, well. back in, like, 1799, <laughs> they were, <laughs> those forest rays were going crazy out here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Well, thanks, Robert. I really appreciate you doing this podcast, doing uh, episode two of the Get Out There podcast. I dig it, man. Yeah, it's cool. absolutely. Thanks yeah, for talking to me about this stuff. I want to get in deeper with you about hunting stuff. I know these podcasts kind of come by and time passes, but I really appreciate well, just hanging out with you, talking. No, and... absolutely. And I was a little rambly tonight. Um, Dude, it was great. It was fun. You know. It's just, yeah. yeah, it's for podcasters. Exactly. They get it. I mean, <laughs> I, I think 90% of the podcasts I listen to are nothing but just... uh you know, rambles for like three hours, you know, I'm like, wow, that was a great podcast. Yeah. I'm all in for it. But hey man, we're, we're going to do a bunch more of them and it's going to be pretty cool. But yeah, Robert, I really appreciate it. Thank you for, uh, for doing the podcast stuff with me. Absolutely. It's great, man. So on behalf of Robert Biscarette, my name is Billy Newman and thank you guys very much for listening to episode two of the get out there podcast.